Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. What you missed this week, I'm Joe Weisenthal. This is the new podcast that has the best and most interesting interviews from the Daily Market Close show that I co-anchor with Scarlett Fu and Julia Chatterley on Bloomberg Television called What You Miss. Our aim is to take you beyond the headlines and bring you unique perspectives on the week's top stories and, well, those that you may have just missed. It's the perfect way to kick off your weekend. This week, we spoke with Peter Atwater. He's the president at Financial Insights about why President Trump resonates with people with low confidence and why there may be an inverse correlation between Trump's approval rating and the stock market. Take a listen. Yeah, so I was here during the 2016 campaign talking about a really unusual relationship. As American consumers felt worse, Trump's ratings in the polls went up. So you saw this situation where Hillary Clinton's popularity rose and fell almost to the minute with consumer confidence. Trump's by reverse was just the offset. And so it's something I've been watching to see would this sort of reverse correlation continue into his presidency? Because as you said, you know, that's not the norm. Even even Richard Nixon's popularity rose and fell with the markets. So... What is so striking to me is here you have you know, Trump approving, you know, getting this tax legislation approved, and his popularity is just continuing to fall, continuing to fall, and it actually pivots the week that the legislation is approved. Bitcoin peaks, so you so at this peak of euphoria, his confidence is at the lowest, and now his confidence is falling, Why he's rising. Why? Why would it not have the typical relationship? I, I think a lot of it has to do with his personality. And, and again, analogies that I saw during the campaign suggest that he really resonates with people with low confidence. Um, he was analogized to Berlusconi. He was analogized to Harold Hill from The Music Man. You know, all of these characters are come to the fore during low confidence. And and there are personality types that really fit that. Authoritarians do, people with enormous empathy, realists. I mean, um, Nasser Ghami wrote a whole book on the characteristics that you need for people who are leaders in crisis. And Trump really fits that. Hmm. So when we see him ranting about trade, putting pressure on China, uh, politically sending out tweets that at at times raise eyebrows and we think this doesn't feel presidential. The less presidential that he appears to be in a traditional sense, Mm -hmm. the more he resonates and his poll readings rise. Absolutely. So, So when confidence is low, it's all about me here now. So xenophobia, uh, issues of immigration, Twitter, it all ties. So... 
Talk to us about how this makes sense, given that the president likes to use the stock market as a gauge for his own success, for his popularity, for his achievements. He's touted it plenty of times in 2017 and 2018. He has. And so it's been fascinating watching him try to navigate this enormous bifurcation in confidence to maintain the support of the base and also keep propelling the markets when their objectives have been completely at odds with each other. So basically, he talks about positive market moves, as Scarlett mentioned. But then when he talks about a trade war or the prospect of a trade war with China or whatever it is, he kind of infuses the market with nervousness and he pushes the market lower in actual fact. But actually, that's supportive of his poll reading. So he kind of has to make a choice here. I've referred to him as like a soccer player who's running from one end of the field to the other, changing his jersey (laughs) midstream because he's got to keep both sides going at once. Yeah. We talk a lot about Trump's baseball. Let's talk about the aggregate for a second because most surveys of people say people are feeling really good. Yesterday we were looking at the Bloomberg Consumer Comfort Survey, highest since 2000. How people feel about their finances, highest since 2001. This despite market volatility, despite anxiety about the trade war and everything going on with you know, the investigations and the tweets and everything like that. What do you make of how good the, the surveys say people are feeling right now? So we're starting to see some interesting trends in the survey. Yeah. So Consumers are saying it feels great now. Things are fabulous. And that would be consistent with the economic data that we've seen in terms of jobless claims and and wage growth. So all of that fits. At the same time, Joe, in the fall, we saw expectations peak. And so we've now had the third lower peak in consumer expectations of the future. Confidence is forward-looking, and that's the measure that I I really focus on. And particularly for the wealthiest individuals as well that clearly can see their stock market and the the assets perhaps Mm. that they're invested in losing some ground here. There is a a difference there too, surely. Absolutely. And again, that, that need to keep both sides satisfied at once. Peter, I wonder if you've reached out to anyone at the White House or on the president's side to to share these findings with them. I wonder what they would say to this, because like you said, he has to keep both sides at bay. And it's a a tough, tough job. It's exhausting. I mean, it it is exhausting for him. And even more, it's it's becoming exhausting for everyone else. Yes. And I think we're reaching a point of narrative fatigue. And I think you see that in this binary reaction to every piece of news. It's good or it's terrible. It's great or it's awful. There's no, there's no evolution to the narrative. It's very impulsive. And I think that's a reflection of just growing fatigue on everybody's part. We also spoke with Alex Tabarrok, economics chair at George Mason University's Mercatus Center, about regulation and growth and why this libertarian academic didn't find the link between regulation and economic dynamism that some people might think exists. What I set out to study was there's been a long-term decline in dynamism in the United States. That is, the number of new startups has been going down, the startup rate has been going down, the job creation rate has been going down, the job destruction has been going down. Uh, Fewer people are moving about from job to job, for example. So what we wanted to do is to ask, well, is regulation a cause of this, which seems a sort of plausible theory. And after dicing and uh, chopping up the data in a whole bunch of different ways, uh, we concluded that regulation is not a cause of this decline in dynamism. Let's talk about uh, methodology because 
measuring or attempting to quantify regulation in the economy strikes me as a difficult thing. I guess you could just do it by number of lines, but then there's also qualitative elements to regulation as well. So how do you sort of just go about even measuring the amount of regulation in the economy at any given moment? Yeah, you're exactly right. That's a tough question. And what people have done in the past is just look at the number of pages or even the number of kilobytes (laughs) of regulation. Uh, What we did using uh, a database put together by the uh, Mercatus Institute called Reg Data is we looked at the Code of Federal Regulations and then we broke it into chunks. And in each chunk, we looked at the number of sort of restrictive words, words like prohibited, Mm. uh, must, shall. And then we counted up sort of the number of prohibited words and then using a machine learning technique, associated each chunk of the Code of Federal Regulation with an industry. So what that gives you is a measure of every year sort of how much a regulation in terms of these words and in terms of the amount of text uh, per industry there is. And so you, you said you didn't set out to show anything, but what were you expecting to have found? Right, so that's fair. So look, uh, it's a very plausible theory that Uh, This is a theory that Mansur Olson put forward in The Rise and Decline of Nations, that what happens, there's no single regulation, which is necessarily bad. But it's you throw one pebble into the stream, it's no problem. You throw another pebble into the stream, no problem. But you keep throwing pebbles into the stream, and eventually you're going to dam it up. So the idea was that it was the accumulation of regulation, this demisclerosis, this building up of plaque in the arteries, that that over time was what slowed things down. And what we found is that, you know, unfortunately, in a way, uh, both dynamism is down in highly regulated industries, and it's also down wow. in lightly regulated industries. And I say unfortunate because that means we don't have an easy solution. Do you have a theory? I mean, is there a new area? I know on uh, your blog, uh, Marginal Revolution, dynamism is an important topic. It's an important topic at George Mason. Do you have a new area that you want to explore uh, now that you've sort of shown that volume of regulation is not particularly fruitful? Right. I do think we have to look more broadly. One possible area is to think about is that another word for dynamism, dynamism just sounds good, you just want more (laughs) of it. But another word is churn. And churn you actually want less of. So an optimistic version is that this decline in dynamism is information technology has enabled firms, perhaps, to be more nimble, to be more quick. And so instead of firms going out of business, you have these firms which are now older, but they're not quite so uh, aged. Mm. Uh, they are able to respond using information uh, technology more quickly. And therefore, uh, in terms of creative destruction, we get just as much creative for less destruction. So, That's the optimistic take. So in other words, it's possible that the economy is dynamic, but that the old statistics that we use to measure that uh, are not really capturing what's going on. Uh, it's, it's possible. So it, it's, it used to be, perhaps, that you required uh, unemployment, more unemployment, more people to switch jobs in order to get this dynamism. And now maybe we, we require less. 
Let's now, that's just the optimistic view. Right. Right? It is true that during the same period of time, we know that productivity growth has slowed. We know that GDP growth has slowed. So it could be that these two things are unrelated, um, but it might also be that uh, it's different in different industries as well. Going back to the question of regulation, so your study shows it's hard to show any connection between the amount of regulation and a decline of dynamism. Is there another argument, or how should then we think about the costs and benefits of regulation going forward if the sort of standard story doesn't really work? So this certainly doesn't mean that we necessarily want more uh, regulation. Um, This means that that this particular problem, this dynamism problem, we should look elsewhere. There could be other costs uh, to regulation. Uh, you know, if you have a tax, for example, uh, that's going to make the industry smaller, but it doesn't mean the industry is necessarily going to be you know, less dynamic. So the tax, you know, it, it's not necessarily a good thing, even if it doesn't have a big effect on dynamism. And the same thing could be true uh, here as well. I'm curious, one, and I know it's not part of your study, but in term, since it's such in the news these days, immigration, I'm curious what you think about the relationship, if uh, any, between immigration and uh, measures of dynamism in the economy. So more immigration is actually one of the few things which we're pretty sure will increase dynamism for two reasons. Uh, first, entrepreneurs, uh, immigrants, tend to be much more entrepreneurial than do uh, uh, citizens. And the reason for that is many immigrants are coming from societies in which, just to get by, you have to start your own business. Uh, In the United States, Mm -hmm. we have the luxury of working for big, solid firms which are going to be around year after year. In many other parts of the world, if you don't start your own firm, you're in real trouble. So when these immigrants come to the United States, starting a firm to them is not something uh, new. It's, it's something which is, uh, they're familiar with. And the other benefit of immigration is that it just increases demand. It just means we've got more workers. We have more, uh, you need more firms to serve those worker, workers. And so just having more entrepreneurial people and just having more demand, that itself could be a big cause of increasing dynamism. And lastly, we dove into the evolution of the sanctions against Russia with Unicredit's chief economist, Eric Nielsen. He told us why he thinks Cold War II has broken out, but is taking a weird form this time around. Yeah, it's different, right? Uh, in many ways, it's more dangerous because in the, in the Cold War I, if you want, uh, sort of the Kremlin had a Politburo where we understood, not perfectly, but there was a process uh, engaged on both sides. This time around, it's sort of a, it's all of G zero, right? There's not a one big power in the world, and, and it's not quite clear how the decision-making processes in the Kremlin are done now, apart from maybe just Putin alone. So, so it's different, but, and it's somewhat more uncomfortable, I think. It's also not clear how things are decided in Washington, too, because you have the <laughs> Treasury Secretary saying one thing, yeah, yeah. and then the next day the president kind of walking it back. Yeah, no, I think that's exactly yeah, how you put it well. It's, uh, it is. It's very uncomfortable. I, I still kind of trust American institutions and, and process, even though the White House process seems in scrambles, but there are still matches and other parts of the American governments that I, I, I trust more in terms of, of processes than I, I I feel I understand, or I, I, I trust some of the other ones. <laughs> so we've had this, you know, we've had the new round of sanctions uh, on specific companies. We see how that affects uh, various pockets of the commodity markets. What would 
this new deteriorating relationship look like if it actually sort of spun out of control a little bit? Uh, it's dangerous, right? Uh, but it's difficult to say exactly how it plays out. The, the first one is very clear. The U.S. has now suddenly taken the lead on the sanctions, even though it's in Britain that Russians are mysteriously killed, uh, under, however it happens. Yeah. Um, and the Europeans are sort of taking a backpedal. And, and part of that is history and part of it is commercial, right? Uh, mm. Particularly in Germany, you have a lot of well, dependency on energy, but also the, the market. So Europe has for 50 years sort of been... The, the leading force in the Ostpolitik from Willy Brandt and, and, and on, now Europe doesn't really know what to do in this new, new world. We I can think. throw in Italy and Greece, always mm-hmm. very reluctant to do anything as far as um, yeah. Russia is concerned. But yeah. I feel like Russia's the linchpin for many other things. That connects to Syria, that connects obviously to China, to the Iranians, whatever the international policy is going on that the United States is right at the heart of right now. Yeah. And, you know, I looked at the note that you put out on the 15th and I looked and compared it to the note that you put out a week before and I yeah. was like, you know, I, I don't know as an analyst how you keep up with oh. the odd decision-making. And as yeah. Scarlett kind of pointed out, the, the, the reversals that we see as well. Yeah. Just overall, what do you see going on here? And are we headed in a, a more fruitful direction for the United States, if indeed everything can be tied down? Because that's ultimately, it seems, yeah. the president's aim. Yeah. I have to, the first question is easy. I watched Bloomberg News. That's how I keep it. Love it. Thank you. I have to say that. Uh, it's, uh, no, it's, 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 it's tricky. And you're absolutely right that I, I felt on Sunday when I wrote that note, I, I felt that the week had suddenly given me hope. Yes. Uh, because I have been, as you mentioned, I've been quite critical of, of the Trump administration and, and the, the chaos yes. around it. Not, I'm not talking about the policies, but the chaos and lack of process and communication. And suddenly within a week, we had positive signs on NAFTA. We had signed positive signs of the uh, Trans-Pacific uh, trade thing. We had uh, the organized or, or the coordinated missile strikes uh, where certainly a year ago France and, yes. and, and Britain were not involved. Now they're involved. So suddenly we saw something new. But of course, they're backpedaled so much. You do with Trump. You never really know. But it seems to. So maybe if you ask me now, I'd say in the weekend it was four steps forward. Maybe now it was four forward and two back. Maybe it's something. But it's still been like that in a sense, as long as the direction is. Because even with Russia, and we, you know, we're talking about the prospect of a Cold War too. But even the noise over the weekend was that. Yeah. And obviously we had this sort of apparent U-turn over yeah. a third set of sanctions here, and the fact yeah. that perhaps the Russians here were going actually, we want to try and salvage something. Yeah. I think that may be true. I mean, the, the, the really weird thing for me is that I can't figure out what Trump, where he stands on Russia and Putin, right? I think it's two weeks ago. It was after the, the chemical attacks in yes. Syria. For the first time, to my knowledge, did he criticize Putin personally. Mm. We'd never heard that before. So something, did he, did he, did he give up or, or the, the domestic pressure was higher? or what? I don't know. What about, you mentioned that maybe there's some glimmers of hope on uh, the trade front, right. rumblings about rejoining TPP. Yeah. Signs are that they want to get an NAFTA deal done imminently yes. and wrap that up. Uh, but do you actually think any of that's going to happen? I, maybe an after. I'm curious about your thoughts on TPP, whether you really think no. that could happen. No, I, 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 I unfortunately I don't. I mean, so the, there's a, the optimistic line. Yes. I think Marty Feldstein was one who featured that one. He said, this is actually all about intellectual property. This yeah. is really what it's all about. I find that overly optimistic. I mean, it, it, it's a, Trump seems to me to be obsessed with bilateral trade deficit or balances. And, it's, and then some smarter people have thrown in the intellectual property, right? which is an issue with China. There's, 
no question about it. But to think that that is sort of all that's going on, I don't think it's realistic. And his base is not as concerned with intellectual property rights uh, as with manufacturing. No, jobs. exactly. That's right. I mean, so so you you can all, this I don't know enough about American politics, but there's certainly a clear argument that you could say the the, the vote winners up to the midterm elections. I saw China bashing. It's like it's not intellectual property. Who understands what the heck that is, right? So, it, so I think if you think about if he's doing this all for domestic political reasons, which is not unusual, not he's not the only politician who mm-hmm. do so. Then, then uh, actually, you should just sit through your midterm election, and things will maybe ease up a little bit. I find it a little bit too optimistic, maybe, but because he seems to be so all over the place. But I think also to your your your, your question on on the on the TPP, it's. It's, it's difficult for the other leaders to say, ah, okay, we just did this, and now the Americans say, so let's try to rework this very yeah. carefully balanced thing. So I think, unfortunately, it's difficult to put the genie back in the bottle. Uh, and, and he burned so many bridges early on when he came to the, to the White House. Just being an investor in this kind of environment, <laughs> uh-huh. I don't know how you do it, whichever market you're looking at. Or a trader even, because yeah. you're trying to decipher the odd communications, uh, the yeah. strange yeah. decision-making. You say that it does show up in markets, mainly through oil. Yeah. Um, talk us through what what shows up, because the fundamentals would suggest one thing, but that's right. the politics and the rhetoric is driving prices in a different direction. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. So if you look at, at, at global demand, if you start by the global GDP has eased over the last two, three months, almost for certain. We don't know exactly how much, but all our leading indicators, maybe global GDP, instead of growing by four, it's down to three and a half or something along those lines. And if you use the, the International Energy Agency's multipliers, it's 0.7 down. So, so demand seems to be easing. Mm. And there are, you know, sort of a, enough supply around and, and all the rest of it. So you would sort of say, on our model, from a very fundamental economic view, oil should drop down in the $60, $65 range, maybe closer to 60 And then you throw in this geopolitical stuff, which is constantly about the fear of, of supply taking out of the Middle East, right? Yes. And then you don't know. And because inventories are, have been dropping, I think, the last five or six months, so they're about the, 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 the sensitivity to uh, the political noise is probably higher than it usually would be. Real quickly, going back to the intellectual property question, yeah. Uh, tr- ignoring the rhetoric about trade deficits, is there a case that it's only going to get worse and so we, the, we might as well act now in yeah. terms of defending our intellectual property and that if there is a time for hard action and, you know, the stick, uh, yeah. this would be the case? This yeah, the that's Trump's line. Right. Yeah. It has already been lost. Yeah, no, I think that's... Well, yeah, <laughs> I, I, I didn't hear Trump speak a whole lot about intellectual property rights, but, it's, but I think there is a clear case, right? It's, uh, that, I mean, they, they, if you look at, at the world today... To, to, to not address the Chinese issue of intellectual property right and access to the market. You can't invest right. in China without going joint venture, right. and then they basically nap your technology. That's not appropriate anymore. And somebody has to say this. As a European or as an economist, I wish Trump would lead that war, yeah. and you would see Europe and the rest of the OECD line up beautifully behind him. Mm. But it's already started by offending everybody in the world, so nobody sort of, kind of <laughs> likes to, to, to follow. But, but on that point, he's right, I think. And also with Nielsen, we discussed the European economy and why signs of a slowdown may be a reason to worry, but not outright panic. And that's what I, I, I worried a little bit about. Uh, so what, in a sense, what you've seen in Europe is we have a very elevated level of soft data, uh, the PMIs pr- yes. primarily. 
so two or three months ago, the PMIs in Europe were indicating that GDP growth would go up to close to 3% yeah. instead of two and a quarter thereabout. And then suddenly we got two months of boom coming down to now equivalent to about two and a half. So all good, sort of the hot air went out of the balloon and we're sort of sitting in, in decent levels now. But as an economist, you see two months and it is like this. Do you just think it goes down and then now we are at the right level or is this the beginning? And that's, that's what worries me. But the balance sheets are quite okay. So I, so I was just going to ask, what's the answer? The answer is, I think the, 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 prob- the overwhelming probability is it's fine. Uh, growth is still sitting above 2% in, in the eurozone uh, three, six months from now. Had some shocking bad weather in the first quarter of yeah. this year. Sorry to throw that in there. And also, we've had a lot of alarming signals, particularly if you're talking about trade, Germany, yeah. powerhouse of Europe, yeah. exporters, yeah. Italy, for example. Yeah. You'd expect some level of, of caution, wouldn't and, you? Some anxiety, some... exactly. And that is exactly what you saw. In the, when you take the PMIs and you break them down, the, 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 uh, the PMI for the present statement uh, or present state of affairs was still very strong. It was yes. the forward-looking part, concern, and it was about exports and trade. So you, they probably have seen the first sort of slowdown a bit on the trade, and then they hear this constant fear of trade wars and all the stuff. So obviously they, they – so I think this is mostly what it is. When you look at global markets, and, and let's just expand beyond Europe for a moment here, people keep talking about the flattening yield curve, yeah. and if it does invert, that that would be a sign of recession. We've yeah. also talked quite a lot on this show about the, the widening spread, uh, the U.S. dollar LIBOR right. OIS spread. Yes. And I know that everyone says it's technically driven. It has to do with the, the, um, the U.S. government yeah. issuing a lot of short-term debt, particularly at the front end of the curve. But is there reason to still, be, to still keep an eye on that and think that maybe this could point to something more? Yeah, I mean, when we see this, we also buy into the, the story that is technical. It's, it's the repatriation of money and the big issues from, from, from the U.S. That's almost certainly what it is. But when you see this, and, and certainly when I speak to my management, we think really hard about could it be a problem with, the, with banks, right? But it doesn't really feel I – can't, we can't see it in any other data. It doesn't feel that way. Mm-hmm. But what it does do is it has delivered more than one Fed hike, right? It's tiny. So, so the issue exactly for the Fed is that, that you have this path, whether you believe it or not, about their, their numbers, but you've actually done more, one more, mm-hmm. one and a half more, more about one more now in, uh, in, than, than what is. So, so the tightening is happening a little bit faster than, than they say, and that probably is a little bit of an issue. So should the Fed still be talking about three and a half, four hikes question. In, in 2018 if we've seen this implicit every, tightening at every, the front end? When you, when you hear uh, Jay Powell's first uh, press conference, I loved it. He basically disputed all this. Like, just forget about it. Like, he, it, if, as a European, you say, this guy just threw any forward guidance out immediately. He <laughs> said, I'm not talking about anything I don't know, right? And, I, and other people in the Fed you talk to, they, again, they say, don't overinterpret these dots. So, yes. it's a, so I think... I don't like forward guidance precisely for that reason. That they don't know, and, and, and we don't know, so they do what they feel is right. But sort of, if everything is all right, it should but Should be. they be recognizing this more? It's not about forward guidance. It's about recognizing or current market conditions. Yeah. That's what I mean. I think, I think, am I not right? Powell was asked about the risk from, from trade frictions, and he just said, we don't do trade policy at the Fed. Right. That, was, that was the first one. <laughs> that was a fantastic statement. But, but and, probably, and there wasn't that much to go on at yeah. the time, right? Yeah. Yeah. But, but, but yeah. probably, I mean, yeah. it, you know, you've just been appointed to the Fed chair. Yeah. You have a guy down in the White House who sends a tweet out left front and said, you say, I don't need a tweet on this one. Yeah. <laughs> just in terms of U.S. data, yeah. 
earlier in the year, early February, there was a lot of talk about, okay, the inflation is yeah. finally here. This time, after years of false alarms. And then, I mean, has anything changed on that? Or is it just still like, well, we should be seeing it based on the underlying conditions? We, sh- we should be. It's, it's, it's strange, <laughs> right? It is strange. But you know what? It's like, if, if you look and you come back to your point on the market, the market tells you, these, I mean, you look at the yes, technical, the spreads, but you also see the flattening curve. The market tells you, and a couple of other things tells you, that we are probably heading towards maybe a recession in America, say, two years down the line. So in a year, we start to slow down and all the rest of it. But then the counter-argument is exactly this. If there is no inflation, the Phillips curve continues to be this flat. Where would this def- or recession come from? How do you think this is all going to affect the discussions at IMF World Bank? Is everyone, does anyone have a new read on, on these same persistent issues this year? <laughs> uh, I, so my view of this, the IMF put out this quite optimistic report. The G7 goes into a room, and if it is like last year, as I've, I understand it, the Americans are not there. So the <laughs> Europeans and the others are torn to that. Then Munchen walks in, and there's a little conversation. And this is a conversation that really doesn't interest him. He's not an economist. He's not really a policyman in the traditional sense. He's also so, busy. And then he it's walks off. And he, and, but if it's like, like last time, he would sign off on it and be, you know, there's nothing sort of... So I don't think it actually matters that whole, whole lot. But it's, it is a... It's, it's, it's a bit strange. I understand the G7 is a bit strange because... Um, you know, it's, uh, the U.S. used to play a very active role and, and not so much right And now it's absent. So Morgan Stanley came out this week and warned about the end of the cycle and uh, impending yeah. slowdown. So to go back to your point about, you know, it's tough in a low inflationary environment, given yeah. what we've been through, particularly over the last, what, eight years, what then would precipitate a, re- a recession in two years' time? What the- would it just, can we continue just to... Cruise. Yeah, so this, the, I mean, so, yeah, but with the, these expansion modes do sort of end eventually, right? And one issue is if your labor market really is tight, it looks, I mean, 4.1% unemployment looks tight, but maybe some of these people who left will come back in again. But if it is tight, then your traditional probability models will say that you have a two-thirds probability of a recession within two years. Because you're tightening into Yeah, the because there's just no labor market anymore. I mean, just think about the, the non-farm payroll numbers. A year down the line, you just don't have people. You can't find these people. So that comes back to your, to your inflation. That should push wages up. And then we can start, mm. if we're back in a year, we can start talking about it. But right now, it's just too hard to see where it comes from, unless it comes from this pre premature or too big monetary tightening ah. because the market and then the stock market wobbles a bit and then you get a tightening through the financial conditions. This has been another episode of What You Missed This Week. Thanks for listening and be sure to tune in to our show at 3.30 to 5 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Television every weekday, Monday through Friday. Countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.